had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome to Transformation Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Just delighted you've joined us with Dr. Kwame Evans. I'm so excited you joined us. <laughs> we met a month or two at the most ago. Yes. And we were talking, hanging out on Zoom, and I'm like, oh my gosh, would you honor me to be here? <laughs> I loved your strategy, your wisdom, your insights, your energy, and you come out of student housing and dining services at UC Davis. We're the yes. director of inclusion organizational development. If that's yes. not enough, <laughs> the student affairs equity inclusion strategist. So we're going to get a chance to talk about four or five different buckets that you have some responsibility with others to help advance as we talk about in these times, how do we transformative, racially, socially just organizations in this time of, in my experience, increasing apathy, if not backlash. So welcome to the show, Dr. Kwame Evans. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kathy O'Bear. It's really great to be here. I'm a big fan of your work. And um, one of the points of connection is that we're both UMass graduates, affiliates, affiliates. So um, that's another really great connection. But I'm really excited to have a conversation with um, someone like you who takes this work so seriously. And it's, it's so critical during this time. So I'm excited for us to, to dive in and have some good conversation. So thank you for the invite. Mm, thank you. Thank you. And especially as so many K-12, higher ed schools going, quote, back live, mm -hmm. though, you know, mid to late August, some of that's not happening. Mm -hmm. So many people, I think, especially white folks, might be taking their eye off the prize and thinking pandemic has nothing to do with racism, social justice, culture, climate change. Don't have to worry about that. So, but before we leap in, I love to ask folks just to help us get to know you a bit and Whatever you want to tell us about yourself, how you're doing in these times, um, and how you're preparing for what's next. Absolutely. So um, I'd like to be really honest when I'm having these kind of conversations. That's that's the only way that I know how to be. And the truth is, is that I'm okay. Um, I wish I could say that I was fabulous, but that wouldn't be a fully accurate depiction of the truth. So part of the reason why I say that I'm okay is that I am, um, as you said, I work in higher education, particularly at UC Davis. And we are at a place where we are excited because our university, like several colleges and universities right now, are planning to have our students come back onto campus. And for those of us, especially that work in student affairs and who um, our whole world is built around students, having them back on campus is very exciting. So I find myself straddled between that excitement and also to just the uh, reality and the continued um, developments that we are receiving about this Delta variant um, and all the breakthrough cases. And in fact, there has been a number of um, 
breakthrough cases that have happened really close to me and with some of the folks that I love. So um, it doesn't feel like it's something that's just a conversation out there. It feels like it's a conversation that's like right here, right now. Um, and I've been able to see up close and personal um, some of the impacts of what that Delta variant breakthrough can look like, even if you're vaccinated. Um, and while the vaccination provides uh, a level of protection. I'm under no illusions that it is. it does not mean that we're fully immune. Um, so I'm, I'm really trying to temper just the excitement, um, but also with the sobering reality that we are in a pandemic. Um, and I think we cannot forget about that. And I get a little bit concerned in all honesty, because sometimes I think we are acting as if we're not, uh, when the truth is, is that we are. So, um, so I'm a little bit, I get a little bit concerned, you know, um, Right now, I'm just trying to be really mindful about what are some of the ways that that angst kind of creeps up in my body. And what I'm realizing is, is that for me, sometimes I find myself getting a little bit more exhausted and harder to get motivated to do work. Um, that's one of the ways in which it outpictures for me. So, um, so yeah, so I am, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. But, you know, I, um, I consider myself a deeply, profoundly spiritual person, and that always is the place where I go for a level of respite and a place to rejuvenate and to get clear and centered. So I've been having to do that quite a bit um, over the last couple months. My guess is most listeners can relate, especially folks who are in one or more marginalized identities, particularly folk of color, indigenous folk, who this pandemic is still disproportionately impacting, though I haven't seen that research talked about mm -hmm. as much, but I, I believe that to be true. Yes. Um, and the deep love of exhaustion, burnout, as so many folks are gearing up. I mean, when I worked at Colorado State and other higher ed places in residence life, I mean, this was, we were probably into our fourth or fifth week of 12, 14 hour days, staff training, student leader yes. training, getting the halls ready. Absolutely. And I was a lot younger then and we weren't in a <laughs> pandemic. And even then I was exhausted. So 18, 19 months of pandemic, time of racial reckoning, resistance, pushback, rise of Right. Uh, a lot of the white supremacy that has always been here, but is now manifest and emboldened and mainstream. So all of that impacting our staff, our faculty, our leaders, our students. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know what, Kathy, one of the things that it really points to an indication um, is, is that we've never been, um, I think, as a society, as a group, as a profession, um, as Americans, we've never really known how to take care of the soul and spirit of people. Mm -hmm. And I do find that um, right now, particularly in this pandemic, while there are tremendous efforts that are happening. And when I say pandemic, I'm talking about both the racial pandemic, but also our health pandemic that's happening. Um, I think there's a lot of tremendous efforts that are happening and that people are being very intentional about. But the truth is, is that Kathy, a lot of them fall short. And even while they provide us a, a quick, short moment of, exhale um, some level of information that helps to calm some people. The truth is, is that that angst, that anxiety, it continues to creep right back in. And honestly, I think a lot of it is because we've never really gotten to a place where prioritizing the soul and spirit of people has ever been something that we have made a priority. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the core central work of DEI work. I mean, you could talk about all the theories, you could talk about all of the, the strategies, and I could talk about that with, you know, with the best of them. 
However, what I also know is, is that um, until you can really start to understand how fragile the spirit is and the soul of people are and make that a priority and make that integrated into everything else that we do, we'll continue to have these conversations. We'll continue to have um, systems that are have limited impact um, and we'll continue to have people who are hurt and, and harming people. And that I think that cycle will continue because we've never really addressed um, the issues at a very root and core level. Well, you sure got my attention. Folks, ears are perks. So what are some of the ways you have or no organizations could address that spirit and soul work that is so central needs to be integrated into everything we do? Well, I think, you know, if you start to kind of take a really big look, I think the first thing is, is number one, acknowledging, you know, the inception of America and how we got here. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of quotes and sayings, there can never be justice on stolen land. And while some of us, you know, talk about that in a very broad manner, the truth is, is that that is, that's a very true statement. And I think until we can understand um, what drove the human spirit, but not only drove the human spirit to uh, participate in such atrocious acts, what continues to drive the human spirit to contribute to such atrocious acts? Because you can talk about, um, you know, genocide with our Native American folks, or you can talk about, um, you know, the social injustice that takes place with African-Americans still today. Um, While different acts, the outcome is the same, which is there's a killing of the spirit and the soul that is happening that we just have to address. So I think that we've never kind of um, we've never owned truth. We've never owned the facts of what has happened. We've never understood um, fully, I think, the ramifications of what has happened, and not just to individual populations of people, but to humanity, right? So when something happens, if you attempt to kill one person, yeah, you're killing one person, but that has a rippling effect um, to everyone else who hears anything about that. And we've got to start to recognize that, um, when we do those things, we have to live with the spirit of that as well. Um, and I think that part of that is what we're kind of dealing with now is we have um, folks who are hurting, who are um, harmed, people um, who do not trust. Um, and I think rightfully so, some of our systems. Um, and again, I think a lot of it is, is that we've never really come um, come to the truth of really honoring our spirits and, and really being true and authentic with each other. Um, so I think until we can really start to do that, we'll constantly have these conversations, you know, and we can we can call it all kinds of things. We can call it racism. We can call it sexism. We can call it um, political divides. We can call it whatever we want to call it. But until we start to really honor that human life um, as something unique, important and divine, um, I think we'll continue to have these conversations, unfortunately. I'm writing my fourth book on leading white accountability groups I was just writing this week or last about just how I was taught to dehumanize and believe that folk of color, indigenous folks were not as human and deserving as whites and whites smarter, better, and more entitled. And it took me decades to even be willing to look at the truth, much less own it and be able to talk about it. You're talking not only at the individual level, but historically five decades plus ago, how European white ancestors sold their souls, basically, yep. sold the humanity for, I know I have, for white privilege, exploitation to get mine. Mm-hmm. What 
I find challenging. I'd love your thoughts is I find individual white folks, we get really defensive when we start trying to talk about the past or how there might be white privilege today. You know, I earned everything I have, much less how I continue to disadvantage others, perpetuate, survive mm-hmm. in systems, get ahead in systems that really dehumanize and steal the soul and lifeblood of indigenous folk, folk of color. And especially to bring that down into a residence life housing. So your thoughts and insights. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, it's tough, but I do think that we need to kind of recognize, you know, we even talk about things like, you know, implicit bias, which we know are these systems that we've kind of inherited. But the truth is, is that, um, the words that we use, the actions that we participate in, they have an energy in and of themselves, you know, and that energy doesn't go anywhere, right? Have you ever walked into a space where you can tell something is off in this space, something is not right, the the juju is just not right, right? (laughs) But also the opposite is also true, Kathy, right? You can tell when you walk in a place that is dripping in love, Mm -hmm. you can tell, Right. You can tell when someone welcomes you, they know who you are, they value you. And even if there is a place of um, um, still where they have to kind of create a connection to you, there's an invitation there that Mm. that has a feeling. It has a tone. It has a um, I think we've never really quite understood that. You know, I think a lot of other cultures we talk about, um, especially like a lot of African cultures, a lot of American cultures, we understand the importance and value and power of words and actions, not just in what occurs in the immediate, but the rippling effects that happens in the invisible, right? Um, we, we, under, we understand some of that. Um, sadly enough, a lot of times those things do not have... Um, a place and space within our um, our institutions, our structures, and our organizations. I have to tell you, I love, there's a lot of people out there that I love their work. One of them is Krista Tippett. Can I tell you, I love Krista Tippett. So she is a journalist um, who is, uh, she writes, um, her podcast is called On Being. And she um, talks about, she's a theologian, and she talks about, um, politics, but she integrates spirituality into everything that she talks about and does. Every time I listen to her, it's like drinking fresh water every single time. Um, So I love the fact that when she talks about, even when she talks about like um, diversity, um, she has these things, they're called the grounding virtues. And I actually use those at UC Davis as part of the premise for what we talk about when we're talking about um, the frameworks for talking about DEI. And I'd like to um, actually, I'm going to see if I can pull it up really quick, because I'd like to share with you just one or two examples of what that work sounds like, because I think that it is something that um, we need to all be looking at um, and incorporating as we start to talk about, you know, some of these things in terms of um, diversity, equity and inclusion. So here is one. So she talks about. Um, I think there's six of them. So there's words that matter, hospitality, humility, patience, and generous listening, um, adventurous civility. So I'll just choose one so you can get a flavor for what um, what she's talking about. So the one around humility, it reads, humility is a companion to curiosity, surprise, and delight. Spiritual humility is not about getting small. It is about encouraging others to be big. 
It is not about debasing oneself, but about approaching everything and everyone with a readiness to be surprised and delighted. This is the humility of the child. It is the humility of, in, in the spirituality of the scientist and the mystic to be planted in what you know while living expectantly for discoveries yet to come. The wisest people we've interviewed carry a humility that manifests as tenderness and a creative interplay with power. So that's just one of the, do you hear the magic in that? Mm. Do, you, do you feel the, um, the power of the words, but the essence of what she's invoking when we talk about DEI, that's what I want to talk about. So yeah, we talk about community agreements and we talk about these different guidelines and that's all fine. But when you start to talk about uh, a framework that, that honors humanity, humility in the way that I just talked about, you're not only talking about um, creating a space, but you're also trying to heal past trauma and just even how you're approaching it. That to me is critical. That to me is really important. Um, and I think it's also something that is not so, dare I say, <laughs> data research-based. And don't get me wrong, all those things have a place. I would never discount research. And I understand how important it is. I think that when it comes to DEI, oftentimes there's an over-reliance upon that information that takes us away from humanizing how we connect and how we see each other and also how we see ourselves that I would love for us to um, consider getting back to, or at least I won't even say getting back to, getting to. Um, so those are the types of things that are rich and really meaningful that I that I think a lot about, but I also try to integrate them into the work that I do um, in student housing at UC Davis. The word way of being is just screaming as I hear you, a different way of being, connecting, relating in humanity. And as you were, I wrote down, I just, everything about that humility, Krista Tippett. Yes. Listen, when you, when you go and read her or you listen to her, you call me or you send me a message because you're going to be like, Kawami. Oh my goodness. She's amazing. But talk Um, about, I'm sorry, you weren't done. No, go ahead. (laughs) Completely counter to dominant white culture. Yes. Perfection, don't show weakness, impersonal, as you said, data. Um, You have to be competent. Yes. And so, so much of the work, I think, in student housing, dining, especially with white folk, but folk of color, indigenous folk have also been socialized in the same white supremacist culture. Absolutely. Um, So, how do we heal the just the socialization, much less all the racial trauma. Mm-hmm. The other question that's on me, I want to get back to the spirituality is, as you were talking, just the irony of how religion, Christianity was weaponized to oh. justify enslavement, genocide, yeah. quote, manifest yeah. destiny, colonization, pluralization. Still is. Yep. yep. And we were supposed to be a separate church and state today. How many people in the right wing are talking about having to bring Christianity in school? I mean, they've been doing it for decades. Yes. So my wonder is some of the pushback that you personally are getting uh, as you talk about spirituality, which I am so aligned with, but I was taught, you don't talk about politics, religion, right? So how are you helping folks that are like, this is no place in student affairs. Um, We shouldn't be talking about this. This is about student success and workplace. So how do you just kind of bring it all that actually we're saying the same thing? 
Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few things. I think the first thing is, is that I have to start with myself and my own um, my own spiritual commitments and responsibilities. And for me, that is a top priority. And that is not something that I choose to leave at the door. So in any space in which I occupy, including my current position, um, I am very upfront and very honest about um, my approach, my thinking, um, and how I'm going to do the work. So spirituality is is critical for me. Um, So if they can take that, then they have to kind of take the full package. And I believe that my... um, my department and specifically my leadership has been really embracing of it. But here's the funny thing about it, Kathy, right? So there's a difference between religion and spirituality, right? And there's a lot of different definitions of spirituality. I specifically like the definition that Brene Brown talks about, and I'll tell you what she says. So she says, spirituality is recognizing and celebrating that we are all inextricably connected to each other by a power greater than ourselves. And that connection to the power and to one another is grounded in love and compassion. So if you can get, if you can even just embrace that, um, number one, that definition of spirituality, you know, everybody loves Brene Brown. My, our leadership team and my department just did a whole curriculum around it last year. Um, So these are things that we're talking about. Um, I think we're still kind of figure out what does it look like in practice? And also, what does it look like for the individual? Because I think that for some of us, spirituality and our religious foundations has been critical to our our cultural um, and our racial foundations and, and knowledge of self. Um, So I think we have to kind of decide, especially for those of us who have decided to assimilate and in particular ways, we've had to decide what is it that we're going to bring and what is it that we're going to leave. I have decided I, I'm not doing that. Um, I'm going to I'm going to bring my full self to the to the space. But what I find, Kathy, is is that once you start talking about it, though, let me tell you who's gonna who's gonna say, oh, well, we're not connected, or oh, um, you know, there isn't. Some people might even say that there's not a power that's greater than us. And I'm like, okay, if that's your if that's your perspective, that's totally fine. Um, but you can't really argue with the fact that the work that we're doing is about care. It's about humanity. It's about seeing each other. It's about appreciating and valuing each other. That is very a close kin to love and compassion and to, um, dare I even say our oneness. It's a very close. So some of us are not really that, um, we're not at that place where we're ready to say yes around the, the oneness, but they can do all the tangential things. Yeah, compassion. Yeah, connection. Yeah, community. All those kind of things. And I'm like, okay, I'll take you where you are. That's fine. Although I know where I'm going. You know, I'm, I'm down for the love. I'm down for the compassion. I'm down for the oneness. Um, but I'm willing to meet folks where they are. Um, so once you start to kind of have those, those kinds of conversations, it becomes really hard to, um, to refute it. So then the question becomes, where and what is the place that this has within our institution, within our, um, our values, within our practice? Would people know that these things are important by judging by what comes out of our mouth and by judging by the actions that we take and also the policies and practices that we enact? Would that be evident? You know, and I have to tell you that um, once you start to kind of have those conversations, it becomes hard to um, hard to say, A, that they're not important or B, to say that they're, they're 
things that either we don't want as a professional staff or that students want and need. Um, and once you once you're, you're dwelling in that place, then it opens up the conversation for all kinds of innovative um, ideas and thoughts. So um, the other thing that I'll say, and I, and I know that we have to get ready to go to a break, but the other thing that I'll, I'll say is, is that it's also really important for me to be a, um, a demonstration of the love. So I ensure that when people encounter me, that there is a certain kind of love, not just from what I say, but vibrationally that comes from me that they pick up on. And the thing that makes me laugh is most people are like, I don't know what it is about you, Kawami, but I kind of like you. And I'm like, it's okay. You don't have to know, you know, um, but if you really want to know, I can name it for you. It's my spirituality. It's my, um, it's my love of God. It's my, um, the way that I see God and humanity, including and in you, um, it's all those things, right? But we don't we don't typically go to those places in those conversations, um, and that's okay um, because I I bring what I bring, and I think that it's having an impact. But um, I know that you know in, in my spiritual community, you know we have um, we have this saying that you're either pushed by pain or you're pulled by a vision, um, and. So for me, I'm always saying, Kawami, be pulled by the vision. Um, and everybody may not get the vision. They may not understand it, but let that be your driving motive. Um, and I think that that's something that really serves me well. So when I see things like, you know, Krista Tippett, or I see the work of like Parker Palmer, I see the work of Brene Brown, those are like my people. They're the people that resonate in the same um orb and vibration that I want to be resonating in. And I want to bring that to the spaces in which I occupy. Mm, you got me. As <laughs> we move to break, can you let people know if they want to have further conversation, have you work with their organization, how can they find you? Sure. So um, I don't have my own personal website, but I do work at UC Davis and my personal email, oh, my professional email address there is K as in kite, L as in lion, C as in cat, Evans, E-V-A-N-S at ucdavis.edu. I love and welcome folks to uh, reach out and have further conversation, especially if you want to talk about how do we bring the love. <laughs> bring the love. When we come back from break, we'll bring more of the love. I want to hear about your vision. And I also want to talk, there's so many things, but one is that what's in it for white folks? Because the way you describe it, white folks are hurting themselves by participating in racist white supremacist organizations. And so Dr. Kwame Evans, Director of Inclusion Organizational Development and Student Affairs Equity Inclusion Strategist, UC Davis. Thank you so much. We will be back. What kind of excuse do you have in life? What's keeping you from chasing your dreams? Being legally blind has never stopped Emily Perry from pursuing her dream. As a professional speaker, trainer, and life strategy coach, Emily spends her career working to educate, support, and provide guidance. Tune in to the Human Is My Label podcast on TransformationTalkRadio.com and open your hearts to creating, supporting, prioritizing inclusivity, and encouraging the best of humanity and equity. Are you ready to invest in your best self? Join Sabrina Wright as she shares tools for creating joy and balance in your life every single day. Sabrina is here to help you become your greatest advocate and empower you to make decisions that will help you live your best life. 
The Live the Good Life Show, connecting your physical and spiritual self every second Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Find Sabrina at the right, W-R-I-G-H-T, balance.com. TransformationTalkRadio.com. Guess what? You don't need to wait until the new year to set new goals for yourself. Hi, I'm Joan Marlowe, the host of Awareness to Action, and I'm taking this concept to a whole new level. I've developed a program to take your awareness to action in 90 days. Let me introduce you to your day one. Day one can start any day you choose, so why not now? We will use powerful brainstorming, mastermind, visioning, and goal-setting techniques to open your awareness of what you really want in your life and take action with intention to get there. Choose to work with me one-on-one or in a small group. Let's connect, lift each other up, and hold each other accountable. I'm offering a free consult to design your program. Visit my site, peacefullyhealing.com, to connect with me, and let's find out when your day one will begin. Did you know that when we talk about the Earth's ecosystems, the most important ecosystem has been left out? You, we created the ecosystem approach to recapture human potential. Find us at theecosystemapproach.org. Join us every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time for the Ecosystem Approach Show with Jason and Patricia on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Welcome back, Dr. Kathy O'Bear at Transformation Change Radio. So excited to continue the conversation with Dr. Kwame Evans, who works at UC Davis in student housing, dining services, close to my heart. That's what I used to do. The Director of Inclusion Organizational Development, Student Affairs Equity Inclusion Strategist. I need to breathe. That's a lot. (laughs) It is. which I find white folks find folk of color, dump on two, three jobs, call it one. And then if you don't do everything perfectly, all of a sudden reinforces our racist stereotypes and our microscope, we come after you. I was seeing if you wanted to go, I'll just go then. Yes, Towards go the end. You talked about your spiritual community, either you're fueled by pain or pulled by the vision. Did I get that close? You got it right. Yep. Pushed by pain or pulled by vision. Could you say more about what your vision is that is pulling you, that you just keep your eye on that prize and you hold in everything you do? Mm-hmm. Sure. So in my so there's in my role and in my work, I'm really clear about the um, the systems and structures in which I have to operate in. Um, I'm under no illusions about them. And I I know that I am not at the top of the food chain where I get to make all the decisions, but I do have some autonomy. Um, And so for me, um, doing this work around diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, number one, it is a spatial mandate. In my mind, the way that I think about it is I think about it as, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, And for me, it also is, is are you able to see the divine in other people? Mm -hmm. Um, That's, that's something that's really important. So as I continue to do this work, I, um, 
I love a lot of the work that's happening um, in terms of educating folks around social identities, around looking at our policies and practices to be non-biased, um, and all the things that we're doing to really elevate and create an inclusive environment that really feels like folks belong. I get that. I understand that. And I'm actively engaged in a lot of those programs. And I think that there's ways in which we, um, we still have a long way to go. So one of the... Um, one of the things that, number one, that I have been doing a lot of thinking about is um, I received some feedback that the work that we're doing is great around DEI, but one of the things is that it gets really heady and it's hard to understand the jargon and people get lost, right? So when I hear that, the thing that I think about is how do we, how do we then humanize this work? So how is it that I ensure that my 13-year-old child, mm-hmm. as well as the person who is in um, a director level position who has multiple multiple degrees and quite literally has been doing theoretical frameworks around this stuff for years can be in the same room having the same conversation and that that conversation can be one that is progressive and one that is um, inciting a level of empowerment and inspiration for both parties. That's something that I think about. Um, so the question around how is it that we're humanizing some of this work I think is really important. And for me, that's a place that I feel like I can access. That's a place that I can um, figure out how to create systems and structures so that that can be the case. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, This upcoming Thursday, I'll be having a conversation with, um, with a unit within our department. And in that unit, we're talking about belonging. And we're talking about belonging from the perspective of you know what it's like when you're excluded. You you know what that's like. And whether you borrow an example from your childhood or you borrow an example from your teenage years or even within the workplace, we all know what that is like, right? That doesn't require a PhD to understand. So for me, the question then becomes, how is it that those types of behaviors, whether they be intentional or unintentional, are still happening within the workplace And when we get that information, instead of us shutting down, getting offensive or targeting the person or discrediting what is said, how is it that we can rise to the occasion to say, as a leader in this department, I want to make sure that no one feels like that on my watch. That's a very simple thing to do. So you don't want people to feel left out. How do I make sure that they don't? Right. So then you can start to kind of look at all these different um, these different ways that that can happen. That addresses sexism. That addresses, you know, racism. That is ex- addresses, um, you know, the homophobia. Sometimes it, re- it it addresses the language. Sometimes the the joking and the inside um, conversations that folks are having. If we can start to kind of break down in really simple layman's terms what we're trying to do, that to me would feel like a win. When, like I said, when I could put my 13-year-old in the same meeting and conversation with someone in our department who has a PhD and they can have a conversation and make sense around what the problem is and how they can start to think about how to make that different, um, I feel like that's a win. And I think that that is very much so um, very much so within our wheelhouse to do. So that for me is part of the vision of what I want to create. Um, I realized that institutions, we create all these strategic plans, all these books, all these authors. The truth is, is that a lot of people don't read it. (laughs) 
They don't, Kathy. They don't need it. So the question becomes, how is it then that we still, number one, make the information accessible? Um, How is it that we can talk about it with folks in ways that they understand and we understand and that there can be intergenerational conversations? Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, we're on a college campus. We got people who have been working there for 30, 40 years, and then we got some who are fresh out of high school. Um, How do we make sure that they can be in the same space, having the same conversation so that we can really and truly move the ball? Um, So for me, that feels like a vision. Um, I know that there's a number of companies who are doing that work on eBay, their um, vice president of um, diversity and inclusion. He's doing amazing work um, Mm -hmm. talking about humanizing um, DEI work and that kind of stuff just really, it really empowers me. It really inspires me. So that's part of the vision of what I see. The other thing is, is that I find that defining what does community look like within a professional setting? Um, Because When you're talking about a community, there's unspoken and spoken expectations and rules and obligations that you have to abide by for that to be a healthy dynamic, right? And if it doesn't cross the, if it doesn't break the law, oftentimes, you know, we we're responsive or reactive when it gets to a place that's far along on a continuum where something is egregious or it is. But how do we how do we start to build those systems and structures and accountability? When it's just the minor infractions, right? When it's the one-off comment. I'll give you an example. So I have been um, at UC Davis for some time. I have a number of different relationships that I have. When I first started the role in which I'm in uh, two years ago, someone who I have great respect for actually used to report to. um, And now I am a couple levels beyond um, their my position when I was there, but also um, a little bit higher than where they are. Um, when I first got the position, I remember that we were in a space where um, there were lots of people around and um, they, it was a passive aggressive move. So they were like, oh, Kawami, congratulations. I'm so glad you're in the role that you're in. And I mind you, we're slowly but surely kind of passing each other. And then they made the comment, and now you make more than me. Um, and then, and then, And then they was like, oh, but well-deserved, but well-deserved. So I I was like, wait a minute. So at this point, we've kind of passed each Mm -hmm. other. It wasn't like a stop and talk about it process kind of thing. But that stuck with me, Kathy. That stuck with me for a long time. And um, it's hurtful. Now, here's the thing. That person respects me, at, at least respect in their their own way. They respect me. They have praised me in public places and, um, you know, they compliment my work. But that comment came out, you know, and I um, the question that I kept thinking to myself, what can accountability look like? Yeah, I can have a conversation with that individual, but they didn't break a policy. Um, is, Is the accountability just between that person and myself? Is that something that should have a larger display and not to um, ridicule the individual, but to kind of put it on display that this is something that happens and it happens often and it happens to all of us. Um, And when it does occur, there's um, there's not damage, but there's harm Mm -hmm. for me and for the individual who did it. Um, So. The question around what does accountability look like in those kinds of situations, I think is something that I really want to think about. Like, how do we create um, norms and expectations that are humanistic that we can actually achieve around accountability? 
um, when we're talking about DEI, because with cancel culture and with, um, you know, a number of ways in which people completely retreat in these really difficult and challenging situations, that doesn't help. So I want to think about how is it that we keep people at the table, how we continue to do a call in culture, but how we continue to nurture each other so that we can all be better in spaces um, that we occupy. That's something that I, that I think about. Mm, I'm just breathing you in. And again, so counter white dominant culture of publicly appreciate, praise, behind closed doors, yes. give feedback, don't embarrass, mm-hmm. uh, maybe mm-hmm. misunderstood. I mean, all the different ways we white folks maintain privilege. And uh, what I relate to as a white person, I think most whites still have this belief. Yes, people of color. Okay, you can, but don't get ahead of us. Yes. <laughs> we still are deserving. Yes. So that, yes. Her comment of you make more than me goes to the root for me of, mm-hmm. okay, let's all move along. But mm-hmm. um, when folks of color have been hired for consulting jobs that I thought I was ready for or should have gotten, notice I should have gotten them. Uh, <laughs> all those racist attitudes of you only got hired because you're black. You're, I mean, mm-hmm. so all of that white supremacist belief is in Absolutely. so many of us. But I think we white folks, especially with formal schooling, mm-hmm. believe mm-hmm. We have to have been beyond that. And so to really sit in humility, honesty, authenticity, to own our racist white supremacist beliefs, we still trip over and still fuel our racist behavior and sit in the pain we cause. Because you're so gracious. You you said the harm done to the person who hears that racist comment and the person that did it. And that's second or third time you've gone there of um, how are whites hurt? How do we hurt ourselves when we stay silent and collude, when we right. make racist comments like that colleague of yours, right. when we turn away from systems that benefit whites and create barriers? For, how are we hurt even if we feel individually we're moving because of white privilege? Right. You know, I'm going to I'm going to inject a sports analogy here. And um, so my partner, he watches sports all the time. But um, I don't remember who said it, but it there was a saying something along the lines of you never know how great the game can be until everybody can play. And I think the same thing is is applicable when it comes to humanity and who we are. You don't know how powerful you can be until um until you're able to, um, I think, recognize everybody's humanity, you recognize your own and and mine. Um, I had a situation where on our leadership team, I really work with an amazing leadership team. Like every single one of us are different people, but bring such great depth to the work that we do. But this one, this one woman in particular, you know, she talked about how she did not have close relationships with people of color. She knew them from afar. And she talked about how her life has substantially changed by way of her being able to be not just um, from a distance, but up close and personal. I I don't it it really peeves me sometimes when people are like, oh, yeah, I have, you know, a friend of color. But I'm like, are you spending are you spending Friday nights with them? If they don't get your prime time slots in your life, don't claim them as a friend. You know, like it's, it's, it's just so. But what she was talking about was she said that I realized, number one, A, how much I did not know. She's like, I'm able to really reflect on my own biases and my own um, stereotypes in a very real and tangible way. And she said, I also did not know just the depth and the beauty that exists within 
you know, black women until I knew you, you know, until I knew you. So and up until this point, she'd been on the planet 40 years up until this point, she was at a loss and had a deficit and didn't even know it, didn't even know it. You know, so she is determined that, you know, we're going to get our families together. We're going to get our kids together. Mm. We don't want them to have a similar experience. But once we do realize, you know, that piece and Martin Luther King said it, but I think also Brene Brown um, alluded to it. We're all inextricably connected. There is no, oh, you get to do this and I don't. Because the truth is, is that what you stifle me from, you are also going to stifle yourself from in, in another way in some shape or form. You know, um, so I think until we start to kind of understand that, that that's a very real thing. It's not just a cute little quote or saying that's a very real thing um, that until we're able to kind of understand that, I think that we we we're going to be grappling. We're, we're going to be grappling. Um, but I, I do think that there is significant harm um, to to white folks when everyone is not able to bring their best selves or have their needs met so that they can shine and that they can show up. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I was thinking about as I was preparing for this is I was thinking about how um, I, so from the time that I was young, I started to ask questions about people's lives and why it looked different, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're like eight and nine and 10 years old, you don't understand why your friend has a pool in the yard, but you have to go back to the building up on the third floor where you all live and there's no even like no green, there's no space. You understand that that's different. And I started to ask those questions really early on. And once I started to ask some of those questions, um, my family, the adults in my world who were loving, caring people, but also pretty limited in terms of like formal schooling and education to really be able to kind of put it together, they would just simply say that people are racist, but I didn't really understand what that meant. So it wasn't until I went to UMass and let me tell you, I love, 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 love UMass. Um, but it wasn't until I went to UMass and I was taking some of those classes um, around social justice and um, Barbara Love, like all these people that were there talking about. And I was like, wait, I'm telling you, Kathy, all the lights in the house went on. Every single one went on. I was like, oh, but the gift of that was that. I could explain it to my family and they could no longer feel like it was their fault. That was the gift of it. That was the gift in it, right? I could completely alleviate them and say, here's the systems and structures that are invisible, that are at play that you can't see, but this is what's contributed to your and our situation. Um, That to me is, is the power of it, right? Um, So, you know, when I think about, you know, when I, when I think about us all being able to kind of have a much wider understanding and expanse of understanding our interconnectedness, and that's both with white folks, but that's also with our own people, I think that there's a real freedom um, awaiting us when we can get there. Um, and I think we're making some strides, but, um, but I think we still, got, we still got a lot of work to do with regards to that. But our interconnectedness, it's, it's very true. It's, it's very, very true. I think we white people to do that have to give up the false sense of superiority, how mm-hmm. I know I created my self-image uh, around how much I achieved on my own yep. and to open up my heart and to be willing to be feeling, which means yep. in the incident you told about the harm that white person did to themselves, which I could tell you 20 stories of similar. Cause when I have 
said something racist to a colleague, much less someone I respect, then I feel guilty, ashamed. I have to justify why I did it, or I keep a distance because I have so much guilt. And so I build walls. Mm -hmm. So that sense of liberation that you talk about, that Dr. Barbara Love has talked about for white Mm -hmm. folk, it's all worth it. And as you you asked to come back to this, as you thinking about going back, we're starting Mm -hmm. another year to have the kind of in-depth conversation, community building about racial justice, how do we address this pandemic and how it impacts folks of multiple marginalized identities. We white folks tend to want, as you mentioned, stay intellectual in our head, protected in charge. So what is your best hope for white folk? What do you need for, what do we, what do we need to do so we can truly partner to create the greatest healthy healing trauma-free spaces as we all come back Mm -hmm. hybrid in person. Yeah. Meet me on the bridge of vulnerability. Mm. You got to meet me there. If you're not willing to meet me at that place in the middle, um, there's no place for us to go. As long as you're armoring up, as long as you got the answers, as long as you're relying upon what the CDC says, which is great, but that's also limited. Um, as long as that's happening, I think it becomes really hard for us to have a real conversation. I think the other thing that's been, I'm not going to say it's beautiful, but I think the other thing that's been really interesting about this pandemic is that it doesn't discriminate, right? So we're, we're, we're in very real time recognizing that your vulnerability is also my vulnerability, which is why some folks are really anxious and nervous about coming back to workspaces, right? Um, completely justifiable, completely understandable. But we also have to honor the humanity in that instead of explaining it away or talking about all the protocols that we have in place to to mitigate it. Because the truth is, is that we still have to coexist together and we have to recognize our interconnection during this time in a really special and unique way um, so that we can really see each other, you know? Um, And I know know I've been mentioning Brene Brown a lot, but she also talks about you can't get to the place of real trust. You can't get to the place of real um, innovation or even real, I would say, um, connection unless you go through vulnerability. You can't get there. Otherwise, it's it's a it's a facade. It's it's a surface based interaction or relationship. And we're done with those. We don't we don't want those. We see those from a mile away and no one wants that. You know, so I say start to meet me at that place in the middle of the bridge uh, for uh, with vulnerability. Bring your vulnerabilities to the table. Bring mine together. And from there, I'm certain that we can um, we can join, have good conversations and arrive and emerge stronger together. I love it. And what do you think of this? I find that most white folks aren't very skilled or competent or able to be in emotions, vulnerability, truth, authenticity racist attitudes, racist behaviors, white supremacy. So I do believe in white accountability space to help mm-hmm. and nudge whites to get so we can show up and meet you in the middle of that bridge. I don't know how you're feeling about that and how realistic that is in this moment of time during the pandemic. Right, right. I think that white accountability spaces, which is uh, some spaces that we're doing right now at UC Davis, um, based upon your work, which has been really good. I think it's been really impactful. Um, but a few things. I think number one is that people have to be willing to do the self, um, the self uh, 
the self-reflection that I find that some folks, they're just, they're just not there for whatever reason, they're just not there. So there's that. Um, but I think the other thing is, is that those spaces are intended to be spaces of healing. And I think that that is a narrative that has to be talked about a little bit more because when you talk, even, you know, we call ours a critical whiteness collective and people are like critical whiteness. Ah, ah, I don't know. I think I'm good, but I think we have to start to talk about the healing in our own healing so that we can arrive at that place in the middle of the bridge and really start to draw the connection between doing that work first with ourselves to how we can show up with our brothers and sisters who are part of marginalized communities without creating further harm. Cause that's the goal, right? Without creating further harm. Um, and I think when we start to talk about it in that way, I think it becomes just a little bit more um, enticing, just a little bit more. Um, so I would love for us to, to talk about it more in, in that way. But I think that critical um, critical whiteness spaces or just uh, white spaces or accountability spaces are really, really important in this process. And as folks are listening, it's again, not that either or white supremacy culture, Tema Oaken, Kenneth Jones, it's we can do many things at once. Absolutely. Pandemic with an equity inclusion lens, particularly a race lens, class lens, and dismantling racism in us individually, collectively policies. It's actually all the same transformational work. Yep. I might have to see if you're willing to come back because the whole idea of parallel healing spaces for folk of color, indigenous folk, Mm -hmm. um, so deserving and needed to thrive, much less survive in predominant white spaces. Absolutely. In just a minute, do you have a couple quick ideas about that that I'm going to have to have a yeah. say goodbye. <laughs> well, um, I think in terms of um, we got to do a lot of work in our own individual backyards. Um, I think there's been a lot of work that we've done um, individually um, to harm each other that we have to kind of clean up um, as well as our own individual work, but also within our community. So we've hurt ourselves, but we also hurt people in our communities. And we got to take some ownership for that, because as I was talking about earlier, the energy of that lives it lives and it creates a, a barrier that makes it hard for us to um, for us to be in sync with each other, but also to for us to connect with people who are uh, different from us. So I think that we have to connect to doing that work, commit to doing that work um, and understand that that puts us in a place for just infinite potential for things to unfold. Um, and that's the place where we want to dwell. So um, so I, I love that we I think are on our way. Um, I think that even having conversations like this today, uh, Kathy, I think is um, important and adds to us moving along that path. Um, But I think there's more of us who need to do that. And I think more of us need to be willing to be vulnerable and still say, I'm committed. I'm going to go. I know it's it's messy. It doesn't look good, but I'm here and I'm going to I'm 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 in pursuit of the love. um, 100 percent. And I think we need more people who who do that and demonstrate it in public Mm. places. Mm, so good. We need to get it into performance management and expected competencies. Dr. Kawami Evans, I am so grateful for you being here. As we close, whew, can you let people know how they can find you if they want further conversation or learning with you? 
Sure. So I gave my professional email address at Kalam, I'm at klcevans at ucdavis.edu, but I'm also a part of uh, an amazing group called the Fear Slayers. Um, and uh, you can find us at fearslayer.us and you can find out more information about what we do, but we are all about slaying fears um, in multiple contexts. And it definitely connects a lot to the work that I was talking about here. So. Drop that in at the last moment. Thank you so much. So <laughs> yes, honored to you. get to know you thank more. You. Dr. Yes. Kathy Bear, Transformation Change Radio. We will be back next month for even more insights. Kwame, awesome. thank you so much. All the best. Thank you. Songs. Many blessings. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.